listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. Life Online, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. prophet Isaiah asks a very interesting question. He poses the question, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? He answers his own question. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here are the and there are little. Serious about your walk with God and you want, to, you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word line by line. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend about this study, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. We are in the book of Revelation, and this is a book that has caused a lot of turmoil among the churches and in the churches as they try to understand all of the symbols and the apocalyptic language. And it, it, it is not a book that should cause so much confusion because it's a gift. It's a gift from God to his saints so that we can, in fact, understand. And so we're going to go through this book line by line and unpack its meaning. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the study. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before your majestic throne to give you thanks, to give you praise, to honor you, to acknowledge you, and to ask, Father, for your blessing upon our study as we study your word line by line, and certainly as we study this book of Revelation, uh, the final book in the biblical corpus, we thank you for it, Father. We ask for you to help us to understand it because you gave it to Jesus Christ to give to an angel, to give to John, to give to us so that we would understand. We praise you, Lord. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. We are in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And just before we get into the chapter, I want to just go to Matthew 24, which is uh, a prophecy from our Lord when he was on earth. And in verse 13 of Matthew 24, he states very plainly, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He doesn't say, everybody that comes to me will be saved. He's, he, he's outlining what is going to happen before his return and how intense these events are going to be. You'd have to read the whole chapter of Matthew 24. 
And as he's explaining how intense these events are going to be, he makes this very plain statement. We've got to endure. He that shall endure unto the end, we've got to cross the finish line. That's who will be saved. In Matthew 10, earlier in verse 27, he says, What I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. So we must preach what he preached. We must share what he shared. And then, to make it clear that this is not a walk in the park, he says immediately after verse 27 and verse 28, And fear them not which killed the body. Which makes it clear that there are consequences for preaching the words of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us, preach what I'm teaching you. And then he says, and fear them not which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear you not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So very clearly, when we read this, and in Matthew 24, where he says this gospel will be preached to all the world for a witness, uh, however you have to endure until the end, it's very, very clear there are consequences to preaching the word of God. That's an important backdrop and context as we come into the book of Revelation. As I mentioned, we're in chapter 2. Last week when we were in chapter 1, I just want to go back to a couple of verses in chapter 1. In verse 10 of Revelation 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he was transported into the final day of the Lord when, when God finally acts uh, by, by the Spirit. So I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and now he's naming the seven churches which are in Asia, what we call Turkey today, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So these are the seven churches that this book that John is, or that John is to write, that he's to put everything that he sees in this book, and then he's to send it to these seven churches. And then he turns to see the voice that is speaking with him, and he explains what he sees. And some of it is a mystery and needs to be unpacked. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, Christ explains to him, he says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, here's what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So John saw Christ in the midst of the seven churches, his eyes like a flame of fire as he's looking and evaluating these churches. And he has the seven stars in his right hand, which are the angels, each one assigned to each of the churches. And so John, uh, Christ explains to John what these symbols mean. And now he tells John, as we come into chapter 2, we have now the epistles of Christ to these seven churches. 
So in the New Testament, we have the epistles of John, we have the epistles of Paul, we have the epistles of Peter. And so we have these very personal letters from the apostles to the church, various congregations. Here, in the book of Revelation, we have the epistles of the Lord himself to seven congregations. So these are also epistles, but these are from the Lord himself. And so John is just relaying the messages from the Lord to each of these congregations. Now there are seven congregations, and Christ identified them. And these seven congregations were the seven major cities in Asia, in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And they were on a mail route. So if you were delivering post, and you got on your horse, and you're going through and deliver, you would, you would cycle through these seven major cities in the order that they're outlined here in the book of Revelation. So seven being the number of completion, these seven churches or congregations that Christ has identified, and he evaluates each of them, outlining the good qualities he sees as well as the uh, poor qualities and what needs to be repented of. When we read them all together as a package, we understand what God cares about in his congregation between the time that John wrote, recorded these letters, until the time of Christ's return. So we have to read all seven letters. Some, some um, church congregations or church movements uh, will, will figure, you know, they'll look at, for example, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, where, by the way, there is no criticism of the church in Philadelphia. So they'll say, that's us. We are the church in Philadelphia. And that's the only letter they pay attention to in a, in a critical way. The rest of the letters don't apply to them because they're the perfect church. That's not the way we should be reading these letters. It, it, it's going to be very clear as we read through them. We are to read all seven letters. So, so when this, uh, these letters were recorded in a book and sent to the seven churches, they were not just supposed to read the one letter from Christ to that congregation. They were to read all the letters. And all seven churches together represent the collective state of God's church until he returns. And we need to also understand that these, the evaluations in these letters are not personal. They're congregational. So yes, on a personal level, Christ is evaluating all of us, and each one of us has to stand before him alone. But here in Revelation, he, he expects each congregation to be busy doing the work of the Lord. And when he evaluates, he evaluates the congregations, the health of the congregations. So we should also have this view that, yes, we are individuals, and we, in our individual walk, we have to stand before Christ. But we are also members of a body, and there is a requirement for us to function within the body. And Christ is going to evaluate the part of the body that we are functioning in. So we should have a view and an eye towards the health of our congregation. And, and he never says to any of the church members, leave that congregation that you're in and go to another one. He really expects us to work within the part of the body where it has pleased him to place us. Revelation 2 and verse 1, the first letter is to Ephesus. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So this angel is now going to transport this message to this congregation. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So what we're seeing as he introduces himself, so each letter has a similar format, and it begins with identifying who the writer is, who, who's writing. He takes an aspect of the vision that John saw in chapter 1, and he takes that aspect as a focal point in introducing himself to this particular congregation. This alone is a clue that we are not to read the letters in isolation, but to put all the letters together. Because when we put all of the introductions together, we get the vision that John had of who's speaking. If we only take one letter and, and how he introduces himself in that one letter, we don't get the full vision. So just by the way he takes a part of what John saw and uses that to introduce himself, that alone is a clue that we have to put all seven letters together. These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he lives in the midst of the churches. So, yes, he's in heaven, and the churches are on earth, but he makes it clear that he dwells amongst these congregations. Then he says, I know your works, and your labor, and your patience. And every letter begins after he introduces himself, I know your works. So, many church ministers are preaching that works don't matter. Christ has done all the work. You don't need works. And yet, in this very personal letter to each of the congregations, Christ begins each letter with, I know your works. This is what Christ is evaluating. This is what he's looking at. This is his expectation, that we are doing work. He says, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And this is a really important evaluation of Ephesus, that clearly they are working hard, and they cannot bear evil. And they've tested those that say they are apostles. They didn't just take their word for it. They tested them, they evaluated them, and found that they were liars. And in Acts 20, we had studied Acts 20 earlier, and it's in the archive. But in Acts 20, in verse 28, when the Apostle Paul was leaving Ephesus, going to Jerusalem, and didn't expect to see them again, and he called a special meeting, it was in Miletus, he called the Ephesian elders together, and in verse 28 he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. This is speaking to Ephesus, the congregation in Ephesus. Grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And, and yet Christ now is saying, well done. You've tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and you found them lives. Revelation 2, verse 3. And you have borne, and you've had patience, and for my name's sake have labored 
and have not fainted. So this is really important now that not only are they doing the works that God expects and they are evaluating false apostles and not falling for their deceptions, but he says here that you've borne, you've borne a burden and you've had patience and for my name's sake you've labored. And in Matthew 24, verse 9, again, Matthew 24 is a critical end-time prophecy that Christ gave us before he left the earth. In Matthew 24, and verse 9, he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So there, there's an understanding that the people of God have to have around the importance of God's name. And that understanding really comes to light when we study the book of Isaiah. But we must understand the importance of his name. We must publish the gospel according to the importance of his name. And we must labor for his name's sake. And this is what the church at Ephesus is doing. So you've borne and you've had patience, and for my name's sake you have labored, and you have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against you. So with each of these letters, Christ evaluates the congregation, points out, identifies himself, points out what he sees that is encouraging around their works, and then points out any criticism he has of the congregation. And in two cases, he has no criticism. In two cases, he has nothing good to say about the congregation. And in two cases, he has no criticism. Here is the criticism of Ephesus. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have something against you. What is it? Because you have left your first love. So there was a love that the church had in Ephesus when, when, when they originally received the gospel and the, the light switch went on. And then they were just full of this love. And, and now they're, they're carrying on, but time is wearing them down. And they have, they've been patient, and they've borne their burden, and they've labored for his name's sake. But Christ is saying, look, you've lost your first love. And, and you know, we all want to be among those who love God. But in 1 John, 1 John 3, listen to what John says. 1 John 3 and verse 13, he says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised at the hatred that the world will have for those who follow Christ. Because the world is under the spell of the devil, and the devil hates Christ. And therefore he's going to stir up the hearts of men to hate those who follow Christ. So marvel not, brethren, my brethren, if the world hates you. Verse 14, 1 John 3, We know, we know, that we have passed from death unto life. How do we know that? How do we know that we've passed from death to eternal life? Because we love the brethren. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. This is the evidence of the eternal life dwelling within us. When the world hates us, when the world afflicts us, when the world imprisons us, when the world puts some of, some of us to death, we are confident that death is not the end. In fact, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life. 
And we are confident of this eternal life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. So if we do not love our brother, we cannot have confidence that we have passed from death to eternal life. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it cannot be that we find ourselves in a situation where the world hates us and we hate each other. <laughs> this is crazy. The world hates us, we hate each other. If we hate each other, we do not have eternal life. So as the world hates us and puts us to death, that's the end. There is no eternal life dwelling in us. So evidence that we have eternal life is the love we have for the brethren. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, and verse 17, Peter says, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. That's a command. Love the brotherhood. So when the church in Ephesus was beginning to fail, and he says, you know, you've left your first love. When we put the pieces of the puzzle together, clearly there's a problem in, with respect to loving the brotherhood that they're carrying on, but they're, they're beginning to, to, to falter in terms of their love for the brotherhood. Because if we love God, we love the brotherhood. We can't say we love God whom we haven't seen and hate our brother whom we've seen. Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and repent. There's an expectation. Yes, you accept Christ, but you have to repent. And, and, and congregationally, repentance is required. As a congregation, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the first work, do the works. This is from Jesus Christ. How dare, how dare any minister say to a Christian, you don't need works. Forget the work. Christ has done it all for you. You can go and do whatever you like. As long as you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're fine. How dare, what arrogance. The Bible makes it clear that salvation is a free gift. That when God calls you and grants you salvation, he does that out of his goodness. And it's a free gift. But in no way does that imply that you're free to do what you want and to trample over the sacrifice of Christ. Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Once you receive the free gift and you're brought into, the, into fellowship with God, there's an expectation that you will do what God commands you to do. And a part of what we are commanded to do, in fact, the whole reason we are called, is to do what we're called as first fruits, is to work with him, to work along. He calls us to work alongside him. So he says, repent and do. Get busy. Do. Do work. Repent and do the first works, or else <laughs> we do not want Jesus Christ saying, or else, to us. Or else has terrible consequences. You repent, do the first works, or else I will come unto you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of its place, except you repent. And remember, he's speaking to the whole congregation. The whole congregation, repent, get back to doing the first works, 
get back to your first love, or else I will remove your candlestick from out of its place. This is where we see the flames of fire in Christ's eyes. When John was looking, he heard this voice speaking, telling him to write. He turned around and he looked, and in the midst of the candlesticks was this high priest, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. He is angry, and he's angry with the churches. And, and before we get into the apocalypsis, the full revealing of all the things that are going to take place on the earth before his return and at his return, before we get into any of that, we have this preamble with the churches, telling the churches, sort yourself out, get your act together. I want you to be successful. And you're not going to be successful if you're mollycoddling sin, if you're carrying sin with you. You've got to repent, clean yourself up, so that you can be confident going into what's coming. Then he says, so repent or else, I'm going to remove your candlestick out of its place, except you repent. And he says, but this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who are the Nicolaitans? So this is uh, two words that have been put together. Nike and Leite. So Nike means victory. We know from the uh, athletic shoe store, Nike. They take that from the Roman god meaning victory. And Leite meaning people. So the Nicolaitans had a doctrine of oppressing the people, of, of victory over the people. And this is the thing that God hates. So these false apostles these false ministers that were infiltrating the church to draw a flock amongst themselves, they had this doctrine of oppressing the people, of, of ruling harshly over the people. And this was never in God's mind. In fact, he said uh, on the last night with his, with his disciples, uh, when they were arguing amongst themselves as to who would be greatest, he said, you know, this is something that the Gentiles do. They exercise lordship over their subjects. But it is not to be so among you. He that would be ruler, let him be your servant. So there's a whole different approach that leadership has within the body of Christ. And it's an approach of true service to the body. But these false ministers, their approach was control and oppression. But this you have, you hate the deeds. So they tested these false apostles to see if they were true apostles and found them liars. And they hated their deeds. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Christ hates this. Then he says, he that has an ear, hopefully we have an ear. He that has an ear, listen to this, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, plural. It doesn't say, and he repeats this several times, he doesn't say, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let him hear what I have to say to his congregation. He put, write this John to the seven churches, write it in a book, and then send the whole book to each of these churches. And then the churches, when you receive this, don't just read the letter to you. Listen to what, the, if you have an ear to hear, Listen to what the Spirit says to all the churches and put it all together. And unto the angel of the church, in, uh, sorry, so this 
just finishing verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Then, then the offer. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And again, just as we put the introduction together to know who is it that's speaking, and you have to look at all seven letters and put all of the attributes, how he identifies himself, put all seven letters together, put the attributes from all seven letters together, then you see who, who this really is that's speaking. In the same way, when he ends with the offer of the reward, that reward that he offers is not exclusively to that church. And we'll see as we read the other rewards. That it's not that one church is going to have eternal life and another church is going to have something else. That when we put all the rewards together, we get the full picture of the reward that is offered to the saints. And this is just one aspect that he highlights for this congregation. That he will give to each of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now we come to verse 8, the next church. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. So he introduces himself. Listen again. I know your works. Again, the focal point is the works. What are the works of your congregation? What is your contribution to the works of your congregation? What is the health of your congregation? Because the health of your congregation will be reflected in its works. If your congregation truly is switched on and is truly fed by Christ, it's going to be busy. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. So here's the first hint of how Christ sees this particular congregation in Smyrna, that they're poor physically, but rich spiritually. So he clearly thinks highly of this congregation. And many people, when they read these letters, they miss how highly God thinks of Smyrna. They just, they just focus on Philadelphia. But here, listen to what he has to say about Smyrna. You're, you're, you're poor, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews, but they are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So Satan has a synagogue. Satan has a synagogue, and the people of his assembly want to infiltrate God's assembly. And they want to present themselves as people of the covenant. And they deceive many, because Satan is a deceiver. But Christ says they are not. These, these, these people are not Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. And this again, read, read this alongside Matthew 24. Because Christ warned his disciples of all these things before he left the earth. Now, they're getting this again in more detail through, through John. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days or ten years. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So to be, Christ set the example 
And so he introduces himself here to this to this congregation as him in verse eight, that which was dead and is alive. So we know from, from Revelation one, Christ is the faithful witness. And he was faithful right to death. And then he, he conquered death and has the keys to death and was resurrected from death and has eternal life. And now he's saying to this group of believers in Smyrna, yes, you're going to suffer great tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. And then he concludes the letter. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Again, to the churches, plural. If you have an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to all the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, it doesn't mean that the other congregations will be hurt by the second death. This promise is for all the congregations. But in the context of the relationship that he has with this particular congregation, he wants to highlight the fact that they are going to be put to death. Many of them. And that death is nothing. That they will not be hurt by the second death. And that's what really matters. So he wants to paint a vision for them that's bigger than the death that they're going to face at the hands of the devil. But all the congregations, all the saints of God, when we read Revelation 20, verse 4, none of us will be hurt by the second death. He goes on now. And, and notice that in this letter, there is no word of criticism, only praise. And encouragement. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. So this sword swings both ways. And it's sharp. And it's in the hands of Christ. And he wants to highlight that to the congregation in Pergamos. Again, I know your works. Your works, your works, your works. What are your works? What is the health of your congregation? It'll be seen and reflected in its works. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Hmm. Christ is identifying where the throne of the devil is. And Pergamos is in Turkey. So at least at this time, unless something had moved, at least at this time, the Satan's throne was established in what we call Turkey today. I know your works, where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Again, the importance of holding fast the name of the true God of the Bible. And you have not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr and was slain among you, where Satan dwells. So, so twice Christ reinforces the fact that Satan's throne is right here in Pergamos. And these brethren saw Antipas martyred, and they did not deny the faith. No matter what happened, they held on to the faith, and they held fast to Christ's name. This is a wonderful evaluation of the church at the congregation of Pergamos. And they're right there where Satan's throne is, and they're holding fast. But then Christ says this, But I have a few things against you. 
football. So this is not such a great situation. They're doing well, but not such a great situation. There are things they have to fix urgently. And these are fatal flaws. That these flaws left unattended will be catastrophic and will have eternal consequences. So before we get into the heat of the battle, sort yourselves out. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So the doctrine of Balaam, he was uh, somebody who uh, they wanted to curse Israel. He was hired to, to curse Israel, and he couldn't. But he figured out how he could get Israel to curse themselves and brought in these uh, seductive uh, women that were able to cause Israel to curse themselves and, and used uh, sexual immorality to do this. And even though this congregation in Pergamos was doing well, within the midst of the congregation were those who were holding on to this doctrine of Balaam. And they tolerated that. And they taught, they were teaching the people to uh, or to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So there are people in your congregation that are holding this doctrine. And God says he hates it. And you're tolerating it. You, you, should, be, you should be removing this leaven from your congregation. So they have two, the two types of people here. The people who hold the doctrine of Bala and the people that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And God says he hates these things. Repent means remove these people. Get rid of this doctrine. Either, either the people change their doctrine or you remove the people in order to protect the congregation. And some people feel like, you know, we've got to retain everybody. We've got to just keep growing and retaining people. Sometimes you grow by subtracting. You multiply by subtracting. And God will bless you when you remove these foreign elements from his body. So you, you have you also, so have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, he repeats it. Repent, or else will I come unto you quickly, and will fight against them, with the sword of my mouth. So he introduced himself to this congregation as he that holds a sharp two-edged sword. Now he's threatening them. These are his people. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's furious with his own people. And he's telling them, repent, or else I'm going to come to you very, very quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the word of God is this sharp two-edged sword, and it has power. It has performative power, and it has condemnation. And Christ will come, and he will condemn these people, and, everybody, and anybody that goes along with them. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Sorry. To him that overcomes, so there's this hope, there's this encouragement that you will not falter, you will listen. And you will correct. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows 
saving key that receives it. This is, again, this is something that's going to be to all the saints, not just to this one congregation. But he's highlighting it to this, to, to this congregation. And it's something to fight for. And there's a level of intimacy that we will have with Christ, where we will have this stone, we'll eat of the hidden manna, and, and in the stone will be a new name that will be between us and the Lord. The level of personal intimacy that we will have. Verse 18. And unto the angel in, of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, your works, your works. How dare any minister say works are not important, when this is how Christ evaluates the entirety of his church. All seven congregations together represent the church of God from the time of John's revelation, receipt of the revelation, until Christ returns. This is the full body, and he evaluates the body globally and through time based on their works. That your health, the health of the body, is reflected in the work that it can do. If you look at an athlete, the, the, the amount of weight that that athlete can push, the speed that that athlete can, 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 can run, the height that that athlete can jump, all of those works reflect the health of the body. You compare that to someone who perhaps has been starved to death and mal completely malnourished, and they're not able to do anything. And so the health of the body is reflected in its work, and that's exactly where Christ focuses. I know your works. I'm looking at your works. So we have to have, what it's sort of training us what kind of eyes we ought to have. We ought to be looking congregationally, that we are part of a congregation, and we need to be looking at the health of the congregation and the works of the congregation, the focus, the vision of the congregation. I know your works and your charity and service and faith and your patience and your works, repeats it again. All these things are really reflected in the works. And the last, to be more than the first. This is the exact opposite situation of Ephesus. Ephesus had great works at first, and then they began to wane and began to lose their first love. Thyatira is the opposite. The works they're doing now are greater than the works they began with. Well done, Thyatira. Notwithstanding, uh-oh, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. I have things against you. Because you suffer that woman Jezebel which calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself this. She calls herself a prophetess. She's taking a leadership role, uh, claiming it is divinely ordained. And she's in a position to say what's what and who's who and where's where. This is what I have against you. So you've done well. Your, your final works are actually stronger than your first. However, I have a few things against you. Because you, you allow that woman Jezebel which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. 
and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So similar to what we saw with the previous congregation. So here now, same thing. That this, this woman Jezebel, and who's Jezebel? If you go to 1 Kings 16, 1 Kings 16, we'll see here the problem or, or where the, the sort of, who, who is this woman Jezebel? Uh, 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, where uh, Ahab, this is one of the kings of Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. This was a horrible king, Omri. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that, so in addition to walking in the sins of Jeroboam, so Jeroboam was sort of the first king of Israel after the, after the division of the kingdom, the northern tribes, and he really set, set the, the, the pace. And all the other kings just followed, followed his sin. That this king now, doing evil and all the evil of Jeroboam, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. So these are a people outside of Israel, the Zidonians, and they always name themselves after their gods. So this king, Ethbaal, obviously a worshipper of Baal. So Omri, who's completely disregarding Yahweh, completely disregarding the God of Israel, does wickedness, and as if that's not enough, he then marries uh, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And the worship of Baal involves sexual immorality. So they're going to be sacrificing to Baal, and part of the worship is the, uh, the uh, how shall I say, just the, the festivals that involved uh, sexual immorality in the worship of Baal. And so this congregation is allowing Jezebel, a Jezebel-type woman, God identifies her as Jezebel, Jezebel, to proclaim herself as a leader, as a prophet, as one that speaks for God, and then to teach. And so she's teaching her doctrines, and she's seducing my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things just like Pergamos, doing the same thing. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. So God is going to deal with her. So she's in the midst of this congregation. The congregation is not standing up to her. They're allowing her to spread her, her doctrine. And, you know, you see this in many congregations where, you know, if we could resurrect one of the saints from, let's say, 50 or 60 years ago who went to services every Sabbath and they were there, and if they were just to walk in some of our congregations and look at the women, they would be stunned. How is it that you allow your women to have their cleavage all over the place as if they're in the world, to have their skirts and dresses so high, it's embarrassing. This, this is sexual immorality. And it, and it creates a, an environment of lust in the very congregation of God. And this is coming, this is the way of Jezebel, to seduce. And again, we're evaluated congregationally. We are allowing this in. 
and then our, our standards just keep dropping. Our standards just keep dropping. You know, it used to be that women were very, in, in Christian churches, they were very moral. And you could see it in how they dress. But now when they begin to dress in this way, and the younger generation comes up dressing in this way, and it engages the men in a, you know, it engages the, the imagination of the men, and they begin to talk to the women in a very uh, inappropriate way, and next thing you know, they're involved in sexual immorality. Well, they're already involved in it just through the lust of the eyes. In the very congregation of God. And you know, some congregations you're going to, and these women, not only, it's not only that they're present, but they're in high-profile roles. They're up on the stage, doing special music and bending over and just clearly everybody, look at this. Disgraceful. What a disgrace. What a disgrace. And so God is looking at all of this. And he says, look, I'm going to deal with her. I will cast her into a bed. But not just her. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. So she's out there seducing God's saints. And God is saying, I'm going to deal with her. And I'm going to deal with all the saints that get caught up with her. So we have to speak out against these things. We must warn the church and the saints about these things and the pastors pastors need to take a stand and not be so weak behold i will cast her into a bed and them that commit sexual immorality with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds christ is looking at the works he's looking at the deeds it's not just, oh, I accept Jesus, I love Jesus, and I can do whatever I want. I know your works, and except you repent of your deeds, I'll cast you into great tribulation with Jezebel. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches, not just this church, all the churches, all the congregations, shall know that I am he, which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. According to your works. Don't tell me works don't matter. Yes, salvation is a free gift. But once we receive the free gift, or the reason why we receive the free gift, is so that we can be recruited into Christ's army and go to work with him. It's not just that we receive the free gift so we can put our feet up until he returns and then we can put our feet upon a cloud in heaven forever this is not the way god works he is recruiting us to put us to work to set up and prepare for the coming kingdom and then when that kingdom comes we are going to be busy just look at revelation 20 verse 4 there's work to be done christ said when he was on earth i work because my father works. I'm always working because my father's always working. There's a work to be done. And he says here, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Don't allow any pastor to fool you into thinking your works don't matter. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan. So there are some in the congregation that have this doctrine. There are some in the congregation that have gotten involved 
in this sexual immorality that are coming to understand the depths of Satan. But it's a mixed congregation. Not everybody. Although it, it's growing, it's like leaven, it's like a disease, it's spreading, there's a contagion factor. It's spread, but not everybody is, is fallen for it. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you already, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. So the nations are not going to come happily. The nations are not going to come willingly. But God is pulling out a people and preparing them to do work. And part of that work, a big part of that work, involves ruling over the nations. And because they are not going to come willingly at first, they need to be ruled over with a rod of iron. There will be no deviation. And he shall, we have to stamp out the darkness that's in this world. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And again, these rewards that we hear to, to the overcomers are not just to that one congregation. They're to all the congregations. But in the personal relationship that he has with this particular congregation and the things that are going on in that particular congregation, he wants to highlight a particular aspect of the reward to encourage them and to motivate them. And he said, I'll, I'll give him the morning star. And we know that Christ is the morning star. And, and the church will marry Christ. But not just this one congregation, all the, all the congregations. Chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. And it's always evaluate, introduce who he is and the very, for the highest priority, he wants them to know that he knows their works over and over and over again. And yet, you know, maybe because the, the Christian preachers know that people are afraid of the book of Revelation. And they, do, they don't read it. And so that's why they can run around saying, you don't need works. Works don't matter. Just accept the Lord and, and, and you know, pray for more money. And as you, as you accept the Lord, you'll have great health and lots of money. And don't worry about any works. Well, we open the book of Revelation, which sort of concludes the whole matter. The, the entire Bible concludes in the book of Revelation. And we see over and over and over again that God evaluates the entire body of Christ based upon their works. I know your works, that you have a name that you live. So certainly any church that has the name of God, that's the name of life. So you have a name that you live, and you're dead. Wow. Christ is not pulling any punches. So here's a church, here's a congregation in Sardis, which this is this is 
incredible. God has nothing good to say about this congregation. I know your works, and that you have a name that you live, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So you're dead. There's some things that you have that there's a little sliver of hope. You better hold on to those things and strengthen those things that are ready to die as well. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Again, how does God evaluate his body? As he looks from congregation to congregation, what is it that he looks at? Your works. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. So when a thief comes upon you, he comes to take what you have. So when you wake up, let's say in the night the thief comes upon you, when you wake up, things are missing. Your most valuable things are gone. Or you return to your car and, and it's been broken into. And the valuable things are taken. So you have a few things here in Sardis that remain. You better strengthen those things. Because if you don't care about them, Christ says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to take those things. So you better hold fast and repent. Because if you don't watch, I'm going to come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So the way it seems like everything's fine, everything's good, but the world is changing and your environment's changing. And that change in the environment is going to open a door that's going to allow the thief in. And you won't even know what happened to you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. So still, even in this horrible congregation, there are still some who are faithful. No doubt they're getting a lot of flack. No doubt they're getting a lot of resistance. No doubt they're called bigots and narrow-minded and all this stuff. Because everybody's going one way and they're not going. But Christ commends them. You do have a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, meaning everyone else has. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So even though he evaluates the whole, the works of the whole congregation, within the congregation, he's aware. In some cases, the whole congregation is doing well, but there are those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and he's going to deal with those. In other cases, the whole congregation is doing poorly, but there are those who have not soiled their garments. And he's going to deal with those. So the congregation is evaluated. But God still, at the end of the day, each one of us will stand before God as individuals. But he's interested in how the congregation is performing. You have, verse 4, chapter 3. You have a few names, even in Sardis. Even in Sardis, there are a few names which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And notice he doesn't say to these few people, he doesn't say, look, you've got a few people in Sardis. Tell them to pack their things and, and, and go over to Thyatira. Tell them to pack their things and move to Philadelphia. He expects them to function in the part of the body where he has placed them. And they have not defiled their garments. We can always resist evil. 
wherever we are. And he says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And listen to this. This is for those who believe in one saved, always saved. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So this clearly implies that their names are in the book of life. But just because their names are in the book of life doesn't mean that they can stay there. So, yes, okay, you are now baptized, you've received the Holy Spirit, your name has been written into the Lord's book of life, but guess what? It can be etched out. So the rest of these people in Sardis, who have allowed themselves to become defiled, and who do not repent, God is going to remove, etch out, their names from the book of life. There's no one saved, always saved. This, this is a false doctrine. And so you have to overcome, and these folks who overcome, he will not remove their names out of the book of life. But the others, their names will be removed. And he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And this is exactly what he promised in Luke 12. We were in the book of Luke 12 and verse 8. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. So this is this this courage that no matter how the world changes, no matter how dark the world becomes, this courage to preach Christ, regardless of consequences, only comes if our spiritual life is right. If our relationship with God is right, then we will have this confidence. Hypocrites will not have this confidence. Hypocrites will not be able to stare death in the face and not be afraid and, and realize that the second death has no power over them. They'll look at death and, be, and panic and they will not be able to confess. And so Christ makes it clear here that those that overcome, that he will confess our names before his Father and before his angels. He that has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So that takes us uh, through the first five letters of the epistles, five of the seven churches, two more congregations left. What I will do, just looking at where I am, you know, I think I can finish this. So let us just quickly go through the last two letters. So that way we can start next week, God willing, uh, clean in chapter four. He says, sixth congregation and to the angel of the church in philadelphia write these things says he that is holy he that is true he that has the key of david he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens i know your works behold i have set before you an open door and no man can shut it for you have a little strength and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, we've heard about these before, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know 
that I have loved you. So this is very interesting now. We see worship. Worship here. They're going to come and worship before the feet of the saints in Philadelphia. And in Revelation 19 and verse 10, when John says this, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See you do it not, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So never fall down before a man and worship him, or worship before him. And yet God is saying here that part of the reward of the saints is those that have hated you are going to come and worship before your feet. And this again goes into what does it mean to be born again? Are we, are we born again when we receive the Holy Spirit? Or are we born from the dead into the family of God? And when we become part of the family of God, then it would make sense that men will have to fall before us and worship. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon all the world to try them which dwell upon the earth. So this is very interesting now that they've kept the word of his patience. And as a result, he's going to keep them from the hour of trial, which shall come upon all the earth to try them that dwell upon the earth. So the hour of temptation is to come upon the world, and it's to test those that are established in the world. This, this, this is for the world. This is the punishment of the world. He says, I'll keep you from that hour. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so when repeatedly we hear in Revelation that God is Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, here we get a, a hint as to what he means when he says he's the beginning. He's the beginning of the creation of God. That in John 1, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that there was nothing that was created that the Word did not create. And when we read Genesis 1, we see that all of the creation takes place with the Word of God, beginning with, let there be light, and there was light. And so he is the beginning, the first, he's the beginning of the creation. Everything starts with him, and everything concludes with him. I know your works, again, over and over and over again. He evaluates the works of the congregation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew or I will vomit you out of my mouth. So the water 
and in this particular city of Laodicea, it had a problem with the water. And so it had to bring water in from outside of the city. Very wealthy city, but they had a problem with their water system. And by the time the water reached the city, it was lukewarm. And if the water was hot, then it's useful. And also bacteria cannot live in, in the hot water. And if the water was cold, it's useful, it's refreshing. And again, the bacteria cannot live in the hot water, in the cold water. But here the water is lukewarm. And bacteria thrives in lukewarm conditions. Just like leaven thrives in lukewarm conditions. And so the, the water is not useful. It's neither hot nor cold. And it's full of bacteria. And so people, there was a lot of sickness in Laodicea because of their water problems. And so God takes that and uses it symbolically. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's such a, a, a disgust of this congregation. Because you say, I am rich, and Laodicea was a very wealthy city, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, the exact opposite of Smyrna. Smyrna was physically poor, but spiritually wealthy. Laodicea is physically wealthy, but spiritually poor. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. And this is something, again, historically, there was, uh, in, within Laodicea, uh, the discovery of eyesalve that could help people with eye problems. And now God takes that as well and uses that symbolically, that you ought to anoint your eyes with eyesalve, so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So we, before we even get into all of the revelation that's coming, of what's going to happen before Christ returns and at Christ's return, there is this rebuke of the churches. Why? Because God loves the churches. God wants the churches to be successful. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So again, no matter what the state of the congregation is, we all have a choice to make. And we can all have this bigger vision and, and, and strive towards pleasing God. And there's no excuse. doesn't matter what's going on. We can have that right relationship with God. Or we can give in and go with the flow. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. Again we hear, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So these were the seven epistles to the churches. And it's very clear when we look at them that we have to put, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, we have to put the whole thing together to put who Christ is, the different attributes he introduces himself to each congregation. When we put it all together, we get the full picture of Christ in his glory. But he highlights particular aspects or attributes of himself to each congregation depending on what's going on in that congregation. Then he holds out a reward 
to him that overcomes. But we have to put those rewards all together, the same way we put all of his attributes together. When we put the rewards to the overcomers together, we get the full picture of the rewards to the saints. Each letter, he highlights his criticism of that congregation. And it's very, very interesting that there are two congregations that he has absolutely nothing negative to say about. One is Smyrna, and the other is Philadelphia. And that there are two congregations then that where he, he for each congregation, he notes what's praiseworthy. So he notes what needs to be corrected, but he also notes what's praiseworthy. And in two congregations, there's nothing praiseworthy. And one is Sardis, that is dead, and the other is Laodicea, that is rich and increased with goods and thinks they have needed nothing. These two congregations, Christ has absolutely nothing good to say about them. So I think it's important for us to read what pleases God and what angers God in his relationship with his people and with the congregations. And then to take that and to evaluate our congregations and the works of our congregations and our role and contributions within our congregations and look through the lens that God looks through and not deceive ourselves into thinking we're more than we are but to see ourselves humbly before God, according to what he points out he loves and what he hates. And then not to have a holier-than-thou attitude within our congregation, but rather a, a sense of we need to help each other and, and to come humbly and to work as part of a body and to identify those others in the congregation that are really serious about their walk. And, and to build from there. So that is Revelation 2 and 3. These are the epistles to Christ. I'll be right back. People of the earth, children of the universe. Why can't you be faithful and true? All that is done for you, all that is brought you through. Yet you've gone your own way, and you chose not to pray. Stop. Be still. Hear him and pray. He is your maker. He is your God. Your life, 
Hi, this is Javanel. Hi, I'm here. How are you? Good, good. We're live and online. Thanks for joining. Uh, were you able to listen to the lesson? Yes, Okay. So yeah, we're we're we're, we're on there now. Yes. Okay. So, uh, Sylvia, are you there? She's not on yet. No. 